So let's take our Bibles and let's open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark 14. Today we're going to consider the, the trial of Jesus, but specifically we're going to look at how specifically the gospel is revealed in the trial of Jesus. And uh, this is also really like as you see this text and see what it communicates to us, it is amazing. It is truly amazing. And I really pray that God might open your eyes and show you the glory of Christ and that you might rest in His love so that you can love him more. So let's read together God's word. Mark 14 from verse 53. 14:53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the gods received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down. And wept. This was the reading, God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you to really receive the food of your holy word. Lord, we our souls are thirsty and hungry to see and to taste the bread of life. So, Father, please satisfy our souls. Help us to truly believe the gospel, truly see the gospel in the trial of Jesus. 
And help us not just to know this, but to love you and to walk in obedience and in holiness with you. And as we've read in 1 Peter as well, that we'd be willing to let go of all the worldly pleasures that so quickly grasp and clasps our hearts. Father, please free us. Give us your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord, even now as I preach and as we listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, we are probably now in the Gospel of Mark, in the darkest moments of all of history. All of history. We come to the trial of Jesus and see how Jesus' own words are being fulfilled in front of our eyes. We see how he has prophesied that they would mock him, spit on him, and be handed over. And we see this being fulfilled right now. We also see one of the best of Jesus' disciples doing the unthinkable. Betraying him by denying him. And Marcus put these stories again as a sandwich. Remember um, the sandwich, Mark and sandwich, another one. It begins with Peter and then he goes to the trial and then it ends with Peter again. He builds a sandwich. And remember when you see that in the Gospel of Mark, you must always look at the middle story as the key to the whole. What is Mark communicating? So your question is, what is the connection between Jesus' trial and Peter's denial? Well, one way to do that is to look at the common theme of both Peter's denial and Jesus' trial. And there's a common theme that runs through both of them, and it's this. Both of them are witnessing. It's the theme of witnessing. Jesus is the faithful witness who tells the truth, who trusts God with his future. He, He takes up his cross. He's willing to die. He's not holding on to his life, but he tells the truth. Peter does the opposite. He joins the false witnesses and lies about the truth. He lies about the facts. He tries to save his life. He's clinging to his life and he's ashamed of Jesus. So here we see Peter is actually at risk of losing his soul. Remember what Jesus said earlier in the gospel, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father. So Peter here is in that dangerous situation where he might even lose his soul if that's the road he continues on. The one who deserves to die in this sandwich, in this story, is not Jesus. It's Peter. Jesus is innocent. Peter is guilty. Jesus deserves heaven. Peter deserves hell. Jesus is faithful Peter is unfaithful. But even in this, we see the grace of God, don't we? Because who is the one who is judged? Who is the one who's condemned to death? It's Jesus. He is the one who dies, not Peter. Jesus is the one who's condemned, and Peter walks away and he lives. And that is the gospel. That is the gospel. We are like Peter. We too are unfaithful. We too are liars. We too have failed. And yet we see Christ walking in front of us, taking our place, being condemned for our sins so that we might go free and be saved. And that is the, that is the sandwich in a nutshell. But I want us to take these two stories as separate sermons because it's so rich it's so rich so today we're actually going to look at this middle part the trial of jesus 
And then next week we're going to look at the, the, top, the, the top and the bottom because they are so rich. So today we're only focusing on the trial of Jesus that reveals us who Jesus is also. We're going to look at, number one, the accusations against Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, the condemnation of Jesus, and then the last, we're just going to close with some applications. So our text opens with the trial of Jesus, and we're going to look here at the accusations, the accusations that are being brought to our Lord and that he is receiving from sinful men from verses 53 to 59. But let's just read verse 53 to 54. Let's read Mark 14, 53 to 54. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So what you should immediately notice in this text is who is coming together to judge Jesus. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the core three groups that makes up the Sanhedrin. That's like the Jewish high court, supreme court, you could say. Now, the, just to give you a bit of background on the, on the Sanhedrin, they modeled their counsel after how Moses judged in the Old Testament, him with the 70 elders. Um, so this group consists of 70 members plus the high priest. That was the, the way they set up their court. And it always had to be an odd number so that there couldn't be a stalemate with a vote. It couldn't be a 50-50. So it had to be an odd number so that there would, they would definitely be a decision after the, the vote. Now, relevant to the case of Jesus, if a trial in which the death sentence was to be received, the Mishnah required a second hearing the following day. The second hearing the following day. Also, both of those sittings, those court sittings, had to be at daytime and never at the night. Also, it was not allowed to have any um, judgment um, hearing a day before a feast or a day before the Sabbath. In cases of blasphemy, if blasphemy was the accusation, it had to be the cursing of God's name directly. That was the capital punishment for blasphemy. And lastly, they also were only to meet at the place known as the Hall of Hewn Stones, which was in the temple. Now, as I'm reading this list of just how the Jews made sure that they would not be unjust with their judgment, do you see what happened here? They broke all the rules. For Jesus, they made an exception. But if you make an exception of justice, what are you doing? It's injustice, right? He was tried by night. Jesus didn't curse God's name. The, the witnesses weren't agreeing. They were false witnesses. They were not one or two witnesses. And it happened at the house of the high priest. It wasn't at the normal place where they had to meet. So in Jesus' case, this was a complete abandonment of justice. This was a com complete miscarriage of justice. And we see the most clear way in the way that they wanted to execute him. Look at verse 55. What happened here? Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Is that what courts and judges should do? Seeking evidence to put someone to death? That's the opposite of what a court is supposed to do. 
They were seeking testimony against him in order to put him to death. They have already concluded he deserves the death penalty. Now let's get some evidence to perform the death penalty on him. And not just that he's guilty, but, they, but that, that he should be put to death. They were just searching for anyone or anything that is willing to come and testify against Jesus. Probably those who, who don't mind a small bribe to come and testify at this night court, this night seating. In court, you do, what you do, you first weigh the evidence and then you decide whether a person is guilty or innocent. Here, they decided he's guilty and then were looking for evidence. But not surprisingly, we read that the text says, they found none. They found none. Now, this must have been extremely frustrating. <laughs> they were frantically gathering testimony from people who hate Jesus, who would take a bribe left and right. And they look at, look at what happened. Look at verse 56 to 58. It says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, the testimony did not agree. Now that's interesting. They choose the words of Jesus against the temple. Because if they can get Jesus to be against the temple, that's the heart of the Jewish religion. That's the heart of their faith. So if you attack the temple, you attack God. You attack everything that's holy, everything that's sacred. Because if the temple falls away, the whole sacrificial system falls away. By the way, that's exactly what the Jews did with Stephen as well. When they accused Stephen, they accused Stephen of being against the law and against the temple. The same tactic. So if these accusations were true, Jesus would look like a rebel who wants to cause destruction of the Jews, destruction of the temple, and therefore both Jews and, and Gentiles would condemn him. But as the text says, these testimonies were false. They were false witnesses. That should always be like a first sign that's, that someone is innocent, when the stories don't match, when there are different versions of the story and it, it, it contradicts one another, right? That's like the first evidence, like, okay, this person is innocent. And we know this because we actually do have the actual words of Jesus in another gospel. So it's interesting, Mark doesn't even mention the words of Jesus about the temple, but John's gospel, John 2, 19, talks, and here we see, and here you and I must be like a good lawyer, and see what he actually said and see how they twisted his words to try to accuse him. Listen to Jesus' actual words very carefully, okay? John 2, 19 says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so let's do a lie count. Let's do a lie count with all the lies that they used to try to accuse Jesus. Number one, first lie. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He just said, destroy the temple, and I would raise it up. If you destroy this temple, I will do this. So they completely took his words out of context, right? Number two, Jesus wasn't talking about the temple, <laughs> right? John's gospel makes it clear. He was talking about his body. 
them killing him. Now that's typical of what Jesus does. He uses a physical, a physical object to convey a spiritual truth or a reality as well. Third lie, the witnesses added words in Mark's gospel. They said, made by hands, and he would make another temple not made by hands. Jesus never said that. He never said, made by hands, not made by hands, another temple. You see, they were at these, all these little phrases were being added to the mix. Little tales, little lies being mixed, thrown into the mix. And remember, the text says there were many of them. There were many false witnesses. Matthew, Matthew actually gave us some of the other versions of this lie. Listen to Matthew 26, verse 61. It says, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Again, another completely different version. Now he's able to destroy the temple and to build it up in three days. So the conclusion was verse 59. Look at verse 59. The conclusion, yet even about this, the testimony did not agree. And now the Sanhedrin are in a dilemma. They cannot condemn Jesus to death if they are not two or three witnesses. Remember, that's the, the law Deuteronomy 17 verse 6, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. One witness cannot condemn you. So now their hands are tied. But remember, they're desperate. They're desperate. They just want something. So in the midst of the accusations, we find secondly, our second point of the text of the revelation. Jesus now reveals to us and to them who he is. Verses 62 to 64, and it really is a beautiful and a rich description of Christ. They actually, we're going to look at four titles, four titles that Jesus reveals, that this text reveals to us about who he is. So after the high priest saw that this was going nowhere, he tried and asked Jesus directly with the hope that he would say something to condemn himself, like with the hope that he would... Say something wrong and then find something. Look at verse, 60, verse 61. It says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus' silence is the perfect reply to the high priest's question. How can Jesus even begin to respond when their testimony doesn't even agree with one another? He doesn't have to respond to lies. Jesus' silence is the answer. I'm innocent. And it's there, it's right there where we see the first title of Christ. Of Isaiah 53, Jesus is the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. And he will do it later again before Pilate as well. When Pilate will... Ask him, he would just be silent. And this was prophesied. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What a beautiful picture of Christ's humility. He had at that moment the power to call down legions of angels to defend him. And yet... He laid down his life willingly. And there he stands, silent as a lamb, led to be slaughtered. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. 
But now the high priest goes to the heart. The high priest goes to the heart of the matter, which reveals to us the other titles of Christ, which is actually ironic because the other titles of Christ are found in the mouth of the high priest. Look at verse 61. But he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This actually sounds a lot like Peter's confession of Jesus. Remember Jesus of Peter's confession? And this really was the key issue for all of them. They all already concluded that he cannot be the Messiah, but they wanted to make that clear to everyone else by handing him over to be crucified. Because here's how they probably thought. They thought, well, the Messiah cannot die, right? So let's just kill him, and that would be the undeniable proof that he was fake, that he wasn't the Messiah. So even if we have to make some exceptions to justice, let's just kill him, and that would be the undeniable proof that he was not the Messiah. Because how could the Messiah be crucified, right? So for them, it doesn't matter if it was wrong or unjust. They just wanted to make a point. And then Jesus reveals himself to them and to us in verse 62. He says, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That answer is profound. The second title is that Jesus is the Christ. He is. He's the Messiah. What makes this so amazing is that up until now in Mark, do you remember what in Mark's gospel, every time someone wanted to say, you're the Messiah, when they recognize his identity, what did Jesus tell them to do? Be silent. Don't tell anybody. He didn't want people to know that he was the Messiah, lest they mistaken him as a miracle-working vending machine. That that's the reason why he came, to just take away our earthly problems and that we'll have happily ever after here and not for the life to come. That's why Jesus said, be silent, because they would misunderstand him. But now the time is right for people to know that he is the Messiah. Now is the time for him to openly confess who he is because he's in the right context of suffering. You see, the only way for us to understand Jesus is in the context of suffering. That's the only way we would see who he is most clearly is as the suffering, suffering servant and the Messiah. But the third title which Jesus also affirms on himself is that he is also the Son of God. The high priest asks him, are you the Son of the Blessed? And he says... I am. That's a clear passage that Jesus directly says, I am the Son of God. I've heard many Muslims say, Jesus never said, I am the Son of God. Well, technically you could say he didn't. But if someone asks you, are you the Son of God? And you say yes. That is the answer, right? That is saying directly that you are the Son of God. Use this passage. Remember this passage as well. Jesus says, I am in affirmation to the question that he is the Son of God. And just to help you understand this picture of the Messiah and what the Son of God means, in the Old Testament, there was actually the title Son of God in the Old Testament already. And it was normally referred to kings. Kings were referred to as the sons of God, as his representative who represents God's rule over the kingdom of God. 
For example, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 to 14, God speaking to Solomon about him building the temple and also looking forward to the Messiah, but it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Oh, sorry, that, that was that God said to David, sorry, to David about Solomon, but referring further than him than to Christ. Psalm 2, also a, psalm, a messianic psalm, but also points to the, the king as the son of God. Psalm 2 verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Kiss the son, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the Old Testament kings were like types of Christ. They pictured Christ's rule or God's rule and representative as God's anointed. But Christ is the true son of God. He is the, the real one. He's the real king. He's the real Messiah. And for Jesus, being God's son means two things. Number one, he's God. That's what it means. Jesus shares the very nature of God. And number two, it refers to his unique relationship to God, the Father, as a son. He submits to the Father and he loves the Father. So those are the two things. He is God and he submits. So that is what the Son of God means. And then lastly, Jesus also reveals himself, the last title of Christ, as the Son of Man. But far from being a simple statement of his humanity, it's actually another statement of his glory, of his exaltation. Because look at, look at how verse 62, how Jesus talks, him, talks of himself as the Son of Man. Look at verse 62. It says, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming of the clouds of heaven. Now that's actually two Old Testament passages. Jesus weaves two Old Testament passages together into one. The first one is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. And that is Psalm 110 verse 1. When it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit, to, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The most quoted verse in the entire New Testament. Jesus talks about that. But then he secondly speaks about Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Listen to Daniel 7. Verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus says, I am the son of man. The ruler of the world. The judge of all the nations. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I am the suffering servant. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. Who will be raised from the dead. Who ascended on high. Seated at the right hand of God. And I will come to judge the nations. I am. I am. That is the revelation. That is who he is. Jesus lets the secret out because the timing is perfect. So the accusations have been made. The revelation has been made, which leads us to our third point. Now comes the condemnation, the condemnation of Jesus. Look at verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? 
And they all condemned him as deserving death. So when the high priest says, what further witnesses do we need? He's actually showing us his relief of this embarrassing situation. Finally, something we can use. His point is that they no longer need any other witnesses because they have heard his blasphemy themselves. Now, it's just interesting that Jesus, again, is accused of blasphemy. Do you remember the first time in the Gospel of Mark when he was accused of blasphemy? It was also, also the, the time when Jesus said he is the Son of Man. Interesting. Mark chapter 2, when he was telling the crippled man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And now the last time in the Gospel of Mark, when the Son of Man is used again, we see it's connected again for what? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. So it's interesting the way it begins, the way it ends. It ends, begins and ends in the same way. And the text says that they all said he is deserving of death. Beloved, this text is so rich of ironies that when you see these ironies, they actually show you the gospel. Look at all the ironies in this text. They say that he deserves death. But who actually does deserve death? They do. Peter does. You do. They couldn't condemn him by any false witnesses, but they condemned him with his own true witness. They used his true testimony to condemn him. What an irony. They accused him of blasphemy while in the process blaspheming him. They are sitting over in judgment over him, but Jesus is going to judge them. Do you see the irony of this? Jesus is completely humiliated before them, and yet he speaks of what? His exaltation. And here's one more. Here's one more irony. Look at verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They are mocking Jesus, they are saying, asking him to prophesy. Who is it that is hitting them, hitting him? Yet, what did Jesus prophesy? Their very acts. He prophesied that they would spit on him. He prophesied that they would hit him. He prophesied that he would die. It's all the prophecy in front of their eyes. And they are mocking him and say, prophesy to us. And the prophecy is being fulfilled in front of their eyes. So allow me to close with just two applications. Two applications for us to take, take away. Firstly, this text should cause you to worship him and to trust him. This text should cause you to worship him and to trust him. What he said about himself is true. He is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And He is the Son of Man who will come again to judge the living and the dead. He was humiliated before men but exalted by God in glory. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether you believed in Him or not. So, beloved, behold Him. Behold Him. Your Savior, how glorious is He?
that the king of the heaven would descend as low as to be judged by his creation. That the judge of the world would humble himself to be judged by sinful men. That the one who deserves all honor, all love, all adoration from both man and angels and the whole creation would, would go so low to receive the spit of man, the mocking of man. And why? Why did he do it? To save you. To save you. If we, were, if we were to be judged by God, who, can, who could stand? Who could stand? If God would bring up all our crimes, all, our, all the evidence of our sins against us, all the times we broke the commandment, every time we lied, every time we were proud, every time we were selfish, angry, lustful, who would be innocent? God himself will have to pronounce this judgment over us. Deserving of death. But Jesus comes and he takes that condemnation on himself. He comes and he's condemned to death in our place. He submits himself to judgment so that you can be free of judgment. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So beloved, are you battling with your sin? Are you battling with the guilty conscience over your past or who you are or what you've done? So come to Christ. Look at what he did for you. He was condemned. You don't have to condemn yourself because a higher judge has freed you. You see, it doesn't really matter what the lower judges think. If the supreme judge says, innocent, not guilty, free. And the judge of the world, the judge of the universe, God himself, if you are in Christ, pronounces you not guilty. So who are you to condemn yourself? Who do you think you are? If God himself has pronounced you free, rest. Rest in what he has done. Jesus is your high priest. He is interceding for you. He is your advocate before the Father. He has come to make propitiation for our sins. You don't have to. So worship Him. Trust Him. That's the first application. Secondly, secondly, not only should you worship and trust Him, but you should also follow Him. Follow His example of a suffering servant that we see here. In 1 Peter, the book that we just read as well, 1 Peter 2 Verse 21, listen to, and the context of 1 Peter 2 is exactly in this context. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Why? Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. Listen, this is the key. This is the key continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is why Jesus remained silent. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. God would vindicate Jesus. He didn't have to defend himself. 
And now Jesus calls you to do the same. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. That applies in every area, especially when you're suffering. When people revile you, don't revile back. When people mock you, don't respond in mocking. But do the same thing Jesus did. Continue to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. The Bible says, vengeance is the Lord's. I will repay, says the Lord. Never revenge yourself. So leave your revenge, leave your bitterness behind you. You know, it is quite hard when someone brings false accusations, gossip, to hurt you, to destroy you. I think there's a, a natural uprising in our hearts that says, this is wrong, this needs to be corrected. And yes, if we can, in a good way, right way, we should. But often it is for our own pride, our own names, our own namesake. But this text shows us we don't have to do that because God himself, just like God vindicated Jesus by his resurrection, he will vindicate you by your resurrection when you stand before him. Just like for Jesus, for us, suffering comes first, then the glory. Suffering first, glory later. For now we suffer, later we will be raised from the dead and be with the Lord forever. So let us commit ourselves to Him. Let us trust Him, worship Him, but then follow in His steps, His example by entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator who judges justly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that shows us your glory, shows us how beautiful and amazing Jesus is. Lord, when we look at all those ironies of the text, the ironies of how men would dare to say, you deserve to die. When we are the ones who have rebelled against you, when we were the ones who has blasphemed you, and yet you go silently as a lamb led to the slaughter to save us, to cover all our sins, past, present, and future, and to unite us to you so we might be with you forever. Father, help us not just to rest in your grace, to trust in your grace, but help us also to follow the example that we see in Jesus. That when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he was mocked, he didn't mock back because he entrusted himself to you who judges justly. Father, give us the wisdom Give us the patience, fill us with your strength, your Holy Spirit, your power, so that whenever we are in those type of situations, however small, however big they might be, that we would entrust ourselves to you, knowing you would vindicate us. We just have to obey, trusting you and loving our enemies. So Father, please transform us. Please change our hearts to become more like Christ, to be more like Him. We pray this in Jesus' name.